It's the Fun to Know Podcast with Dan Buskirk. On today's show, the bassist, composer, and author, William Parker. I got that bass for 100 bucks. That was the time you could put down a dollar. and it's, <laughs> It was only $100, but we didn't have any money. you know. And then the day I got out of the store with the bass, I run into this guy and he says, oh, are you a bass player? And I said, uh, yeah. And so he invites me to a jam session up in Harlem somewhere. So all that week, I played the bass up and down and... And then I got to the jam session on Sunday. I, we, we played, and I was playing. They said, this bass player is good, man. I can play. And then I played until my hands were like big bubbles of blood. So I said, man, cats, I got to... Because they were saying cats and all that. That's the musicians talking. So I said, man, cats, you know, I got I got another thing to go to. After our longest sabbatical ever, welcome back to the Fun to Know podcast. I'm Dan Buskirk, and here we talk to artists, writers, and musicians about their lives and work. You can find the Fun to Know podcast at SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Leave comments for us there or email us at Fun to Know Podcast, always with the numeral two, at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to leave a review over at our page on iTunes. The show has taken a couple of months off, during which I taught my first class on jazz history. I soon realized I basically had to curate a 12-hour documentary on the music, but it turned out to be a pretty fulfilling experience, and I'm glad to announce I'll be teaching again this summer. The class will not be on jazz, but on film history this time, and it will be held at the Fleischer Art Memorial in South Philly. With the Democratic Convention coming to Philadelphia during this most dramatic of campaign seasons, We'll be viewing and discussing four American films about political campaigns, two documentary and two fiction films. It should be a great time. You can find out more about this class at Fleischer.org. That's F-L-E-I-S-H-E-R.org. I'm envious of those podcasts that can deliver dependable weekly episodes. On Brett Easton Ellis's thoughtful and often quietly infuriating podcast, he has labeled his stops and starts as Seasons. In that spirit, we're gearing up for a steady new season of interviews over the next few months, including an episode with a young painter with a lot of insight drawn from his experience living on both sides of the Iron Curtain, and a man who has dedicated decades to the cause of rock and roll, whose still-evolving memoir is a moving and music-drenched look at growing up in the 70s and 80s. Check back as we're looking to keep a regular bi-weekly schedule for the show. On today's show, the bassist, composer, and author William Parker. Among the most prominent New Yorkers in the world of contemporary jazz and creative music, Parker first gained notice playing with the groundbreaking pianist Cecil Taylor in the 1980s and has gone on to release dozens of his own recordings on numerous labels internationally as well as on his Centering label. Parker has worked with many of the most uncompromised talents of his time, including David S. Ware, Matthew Shipp, Billy Bang, Charles Gale, and Gene Lee. For me, he's a favorite artist among musicians working today with an endlessly searching quality that makes each of his many diverse releases a discovery. Much like his music, I was delighted to find the man to be one of big ideas and good humor, and our time together seemed to go by much too soon. Our conversation took place in May of 2014, and I'd like to thank WPRB in Princeton for originally hosting this interview live on the air. Thanks to Mark Chrisman from Ars Nova as well for his help in bringing Mr. Parker and I together. We'll hear a brief snippet of Parker's big band playing Ellington as we head into our conversation.
I wanted to talk to you about uh, what what has to be your your, your big love, the the bass. I, I was I was curious about your relationship with your instrument. I mean, you you've gotten more sounds out of that bass than just about any bass player I can think of. So how did you were you first attracted to the bass? Well, one of the first music I listened to when I was about seven years old was uh, the Ellington Orchestra. The first records I heard of 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 uh, improvised music was Duke Ellington Live at Newport. And that record was played daily at my house, and we would have dance contests to Paul Gonzalez's uh, long chorus of solos. <laughs> and uh, later on, I got, I'm just giving you a quick timeline. Did you, did you win the dance contest? Were well, you, uh... we, well, it was me and my brother. We both won. <laughs> we, we got a quarter. Uh, at least we got an IOU for a quarter. And we did that for uh, quite a while. because my, my father's idol was Duke Ellington. Yeah. And he came home and gave me a trumpet, gave my brother a saxophone, and we had lessons on those instruments. And then I got a trombone, and then eventually a cello. And um, then I, I, saw, I saw this movie called Shoot the Piano Player by Francois Truffaut. And uh, I noticed the bass player in that movie. What was his name? Pierre uh, uh, Michelot. Yeah. yeah. And uh, there's a scene where he walks through the movie with the bass. So that was my kind of introduction to what the the bass was outside of being then the cello and the orchestra and seeing the bass and just beginning to get attracted to it and then listening to Percy Heath of the <laughs> Modern Jazz Quartet. Where where did you see Shoot the Piano Player? I'm still held up on you uh, watching oh, Truffaut. Uh, you know, I... In the Bronx. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a great movie, Charles Aznavour. And, yes, uh, It's yes. based on a, a a book by David Goodis, the Philadelphia pulp yeah, writer. Yeah. yeah. We, we, it was one of my favorite movies, and, and actually Alphaville also. Oh, yeah. By uh, Jean-Luc Godard. And uh, I, I began getting into to films early on. Uh-huh. You know, for, first I started with... What, what age is this, you think? About 10 years old, yeah. because in 1962, Lawrence of Arabia came out. Played at the Criterion Theater for the longest time. In those days, they'd they, they play uh, a movie at the big theater downtown, and we were living in the Bronx. So then, after about a year, it would come up to the lowest paradise in the Bronx. And then I, I went and saw Lawrence of Arabia with the soundtrack by Maurice Jarre. And then, of course, I was introduced to David Lean, and then uh, it was an epic time. Then, you know, Dr. Zhivago, Ryan's daughter, then going back to the Bridge of you know, going back a little bit. And um, the movie was always a a good babysitter, and um, and I just began listening to to the music in the movies and uh, just became attracted to the movies, and eventually... I uh, got into foreign movies, you know, Claude Chabot, his mysteries, and the French, a little period of French cinema there, you know, Jean-Luc Godard and and, uh, Francois Truffaut, and then over to Igmar Bergman, and, and, you know, Passion of Anna and Shame, (laughs) Wild Strawberries, you know, all all those movies. And then I kind of moved to... Independent cinema, you know, Stan Brackett, Bruce Bailey, Amaya Darren, all those films. As I went down to the film anthologies, 88 Wooster Street in New York, yeah. it was $2. And, but all of this kind of coincided with my bass playing in the sense that, you know, listening to Percy Heath and then listening to uh, Charlie Hayden with Ornette Coleman and Jimmy Garrison with John Coltrane and listening to all the great bass players, uh, Paul Chambers. Uh, I listened to Mingus sort of later on. He was like a, a little further down the line. As I listened to Jimmy Garrison a lot more than I listened to, to Mingus at that time because I was listening to Coltrane more than I was listening to Mingus. And so I thought that when I found out why music was existed, 
which was kind of stated in John Coltrane's liner notes for Love Supreme, that music could uplift people to uh, to another consciousness, and they could really get inside why they were living, and, and it was actually a healing thing. So I decided to make a stab at playing music, and I thought that I could do it playing the bass. So I ran into, uh, at that time, I was kind of writing independent reviews of concerts. I had my own little magazine. What was the name of your magazine? It was called The Bill Collector. <laughs> and um, so I, I went and I reviewed a concert of uh, Carl Berger, Charlie Hayden, Horace Arnold, and Carlos Ward at the 125th Street Library. What, what year might this be? This was like 70... Two, something like that, yeah. 71. And uh, so I, I told, uh, spoke to Charlie, and I, uh, actually maybe it was a little earlier than that, because it was around the time that Liberation Music Orchestra record, that came out in 68. Okay, yeah. So it was a little earlier than that. And I spoke to Charlie, I said I wanted to play the bass, so he told me to uh, listen to records and play along with records. He said that's how he learned to play the bass. And so uh, I did that, but I didn't have a bass. <laughs> so I used to play uh, the broomstick at first. Uh -huh. And I'd go up and down the broomstick and stretch my hands out because I had also spoke to Richard Davis, and that's what he told me to do. So uh, I, I was inadvertently you know, getting information from Richard Davis and Charlie Hayden. And uh, Bronin's Music in the Bronx, they had a bass, a Juzak bass, actually the same bass I'm playing to, de today at the church. I'll be, I got that bass for 100 bucks, And it was a time you could put down a dollar and put down the next dollar. Put, so it <laughs> took me a long time to get this instrument. When I, when I finally got the instrument out, they were so happy. They said, finally. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it was only $100, but we didn't have any money, you know, so we just did a little drop in the hat. And then the day I got out of the store with the bass, I run into this guy, and he says, oh, are you a bass player? And I said, uh, yeah. <laughs> and so he invites me to a jam session up at uh, in Harlem somewhere, up in Amsterdam Avenue. So all that week, that was early in the week, the jam session was Sunday, so I played the bass. I didn't know anything about it, but I played up and down and played with the records. And then I got to the jam session on Sunday, and they said, oh, man, the bass player's here. Oh, this is cool. Yeah, we got, finally got a bass player. And so uh, they said, oh, let's play straight note chaser and F or B. Flat. What, what key do you want to play then? I said, any key, because I didn't know what a key was. <laughs> so but I, we, we played, and I was playing. They said, this bass player is good. This bass player is good, man. He can play. They gave me solos and everything. And then I played until my hands were like, had, were like big bubbles of blood. <laughs> so I, 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 said, I said, how am I going to get out of this one? So I said, man, cats, I got to, because they were saying cats and all that. That's the musicians talking. So I said, man, cats, you know, I got I got another thing to go to. And so um, I left. You got a couple gigs lined up. <laughs> and I uh, left, and then the next week I went to the Jazzmobile School of Music up in Harlem. And uh, the who, faculty. Who, who ran that? That was run by the Jazzmobile, Billy Taylor. And uh, Dizzy Gillespie, and uh, the faculty of that school, we had uh, Albert Tiddy Heath was teaching drums, Freddie Waits was teaching drums, Roland Hanna was a piano teacher, Lee Morgan, Kenny Durham, Joe Newman were the trumpet teachers, and sometimes Dizzy. Uh, we My had <laughs> uh, Jimmy Heath, Frank Foster, uh, Bud Johnson, were teaching tenors, Sylvester Kleiner, Sonny Red was teaching alto, Benny Powell, Curtis Fuller, Richard Davis, Milton, Art Davis were teaching bass. Uh, who else came up there teaching bass? But So I went up there, and Paul West was the director of it. He played bass player, and he was with Dizzy Gillespie's band. So he put me in a, and there was no classroom, so he put me in a bathroom. And um, he gave me a chart for Honeysuckle Rose. And uh, so I'm playing, the, and he showed me the half position. I'm playing 
honeysuckle rose. Uh, and, you could read music. Uh, yeah, he time? taught me that, oh, yeah. just then. I, you yeah. know, I mean, I, I mean, I had experience in notes and stuff from before, from the trumpet, the trombone, and the cello. Yeah. So I wasn't, you know, oblivious to it. But but how those notes relate to and where they are on a bass. So it wasn't it wasn't that difficult. But he put me in there with that with that chart, and then I'm playing it. And the next thing I know, I hear a bang on the door. And the guy says, who's in there? And I said, oh, I'm just in here practicing. And he says, it's 6 o'clock, man. You went to music school? He says, yeah, the school closed at 4 o'clock. <laughs> but, I, but I was so concentrated in there. I didn't eat. I didn't drink. I, I, the only thing I did was just go to the bathroom <laughs> and practice. And so, and then every week I came back there. The only problem was that I had been indoctrinated in what they call the fire music, the avant-garde. Yeah. You know, I, I was into Archie Shep and Albert Eiler and Cecil Taylor and Sonny Murray and yeah. Milford Graves and Bill Dix and all these. And that's the kind of music I really wanted to play. Um, and we were playing uh, Oliver Nelson and Denny Golson and the original arrangements they brought up there. And I guess what I needed at that time was someone to tell me, well, why don't you learn this? Then you can do that. And I was saying, I want to learn that. <laughs> and, 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 and I don't know about that other thing. <laughs> but anyway, I, I, I left the, the jazz mobile and I migrated downtown where I, and I started studying with Jimmy Garrison. Yeah. Or he lived on Western Avenue and I studied with Wilbur Ware who was down on 11th Street between B and C. And uh, then I proceeded to do on-the-job training because I knew that I had to learn the bass. So I, I played with um, with actors, dancers, uh, played with a ventriloquist. I played in shows. I played with folk singers. I played in a Cuban folkloric band. I played all different kinds of music 24-7. Yeah, I guess New York gave you that, that uh, possibility yeah, to that play time, so many different yeah, kinds of music. At that time in the, in the early 70s, it was, you, could, you could play, uh, you could leave the Bronx. I could leave the Bronx and be gone all day playing with different people. And then I began an on-the-job training program where I, I met different musicians different in different times. Like I met uh, Billy Higgins, the drummer, and I met him, I met Andrew Hill and Billy Higgins the same day. And I would go out to Brooklyn to St. Mark's Street in Brooklyn to Billy Higgins' house every day. And uh, Clifford Jordan was out there and the pianist um, Chris Anderson was out there. And also Wilbur was out there. And uh, so I would play duos a lot with Billy. And that's where I really refined the idea of keeping time and learning about the dance. Because Jimmy Garrison would tell me about the dance, and it's not just keeping like a metronome, but it's dancing. It's moving within the time. It's, it's, it's bouncing. It's floating. It's allowing the music to breathe. So I learned this, you know, by playing with Billy Higgins, playing with a drummer called Scobie Stroman, uh, playing with Walter Perkins, uh, later on playing with Dennis Charles and Ed Blackwell and Roger Blank. And uh, so everyone had a different concept of of music. I played a lot with a group called Melodic Artet with Charles Brackeen and Roger Blank and uh, Ahmed Abdullah in uh, 1973. I met Cecil Taylor. And uh, played in his big band in 74. We did a, a gig at Carnegie Hall. I played with Sonny Murray, with Charles Tyler. In 1975, I played at the Five Spot with Don Cherry. I was playing with Maxine Sullivan. Uh, she had a house up in the Bronx called The House That Jazz Built, which was actually near uh, Bertha Hope, the piano player. And Bertha Hope's uh, widow. Yeah. yeah. So I played with her, I played with Maxine Sullivan, and uh, so I was playing all kinds of music all the time. 
it's funny. I picked up uh, the Frank Lowe record, uh, Black Beings, I think yeah. is the name of it. Yeah. And I, I think that's the first time I, I, I've come across, the earliest state I, I'd found that you played on. But there, there seems to be a, a, a gap in, in what was going on uh, between then and when you were uh, a band leader. But it, it sounds like you were plenty busy throughout Newark. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was, yeah. A, it was a big gap. But as far as recordings, but I was definitely doing uh, many, many things. Uh, a lot of musicians were in New York, didn't get recorded. But I, I was a, what was a pivotal band for me was a group called the Music Ensemble which was a group with Daniel Carter and uh, Dewey Johnson, the trumpet player, a trumpet player by the name of Malik Baraka. Billy Bang was in that band, another bass player, Earl Freeman, and a drummer, Roger Baird. And we would meet all the time, and we would play what we call daily music. It was Each set was three to five hours. Wow. And maybe we would start the concert off with just reading mm -hmm. a book. <laughs> And we would just kind of do, uh, uh, there was, a, there was a, a theater person who was an independent cinema called Jack Smith. Yeah, sure. And Jack Smith had this thing, with, if, if you went to a theater thing with him, you know, everything was part of the theater. When you walked in, you know, he's looking for the script, he's doing this, he's doing that. And so uh, no one had seen Jack Smith. We weren't imitating that kind of thing, but, but it was all part of the music, and someone would write a poem. And then when we felt inclined, we would play sound. And there were tons and tons of tapes of that band, and one record got released a few years ago called The Music Ensemble. But that was a very, very, very pivotal band of mine as far as learning music. Also, a band called the Juice Quartet, a saxophone player named Alan Glover, Juice, and a piano player, Kassar Allah, and we had different drummers. But uh, that band and the Aboriginal Music Society with Juma Sultan, because it was a loft scene. So you basically had Studio Ribby, which is 24 Bond Street. You had uh, 193 Eldridge Street, which was Studio Wee. You had the Sunrise Studios on 2nd Avenue. You had the Ladies' Fort, which was on Barn Street, run by Jolie Wilson. You had Studio Wiss, which was on the west side, run by Warren Smith. You had Inroads, which was run down to, on Mercer Street, run by Charles Tyler and Frank Ferrucci. So all of these places, you got to remember, in New York at that time, you could rent a storefront for $200 a month. Wow. So uh, there were a lot of storefronts and lofts, and since the clubs weren't hiring the musicians, everyone did their own independent concert. In 1973, there was an influx of musicians from St. Louis, from Chicago, from Los Angeles. David Murray came from Los Angeles, Butch Morris. Uh, you had... Fred Hopkins, Henry Threadgill, Moore, Richard Abrams, and many others from Chicago, from St. Louis. You had uh, Hamid Blewett, Oliver Lake, Julius Hemphill, and they all were in New York, and they all had their, the Sunrise Studios on 2nd Avenue upstairs, the Tin Palace, uh, where David Murray played a lot, and uh, they had a big bands and you know i had a big band up at holy name church on the, up on the upper west side and so there was a lot of music happening and you could sort of pick what you wanted to do and play
was formulating, we spoke about making sounds on the bass. When I was formulating my idea of bass playing, even though I was studying with people, uh, people say, well, you know, you study with all these people. And I always say, well, I don't know if I learned anything, but <laughs> but I was able to, in one way, figure out a method of how I was approaching, going to approach the instrument. I had two, two methods. One was my arco method, uh -huh. which was I viewed each string as a band of light, and the bow was a prism. And when you send light through a prism, you see colors. And the idea was that when I bowed harmonics, that was going to be my foundation, the bowing, because that's where the nutrients of the sound was, in the, and not in the full tone, uh, but in the harmonics. And then realizing there was a difference between a note and a sound. And that uh, one one was 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 fixed and related to a piano, and the other was related to the human voice, which I've been talking about Ornette Coleman, you know, recently about how his sound was definitely uh, not about notes and scales, but it was about speech-like phrases. And then in the pizzicato realm of playing the bass, I would think of the bass as a drum set. My G string was always my ride cymbal. My D string was my snare. My A string was my low tom. And my E string was my gong. <laughs> you know, and, and that's how I related to the bass. I wasn't relating to it in terms of, of, uh, of scales, of what, how people relate to the bass. <laughs> and that's how I built my concept. It's more like the tonality of drums. Uh, well, yeah, it's it's more like the tonality of of the idea of speaking of speech, the idea of rhythm is melody and melody is rhythm, the idea of the human heartbeat, the idea of um, of movement of air and vibration and and all of these things. Uh, were like it, at the root of of what my idea or concept of the instrument, and 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 you really couldn't don't really find this in any book of how to, you know, about it's always about the notes and the piano, but that's not how I approached it. And then, just to sum this up, in t in 2012, I went to Milford Graves's house out in uh, Jamaica Queens, and Milford's been doing uh, heart research. And his, he's, he's been putting uh, electronic stethoscopes on your heart and recording your heartbeat because you can't just do it with a, with a regular uh, stethoscope because it doesn't pick up all the, all the, uh, the sounds. And then he runs, tapes the sounds five different places and then puts it through a subwoofer so you can hear it. Wow. And then so one day... About a year later, I came to Milford's house, and he said, uh, I got something to play you. And so he played this heartbeat, and it sounded just like my bass solo. <laughs> and that's when I knew, like, all of what I've been working on just came together, that it wasn't just a, uh, that, that we could prove things scientifically about vibration, about where the music really comes from. You know, that it wasn't about avant-garde or jazz or or it was really our heartbeats, our vibrations, the way we breathe comes out in the music. And if you study music and you change that too much, you really could be getting away from yourself. And uh, you want yeah, and I said, I don't want so I was happy that I had not gotten away from myself and I really found uh was close to where my heart was was beating. The mountain is dancing The mountain is dancing The mountain is dancing High sound 
girls a dream to me except you, except your sweet soul. High sound, high silence. This record uh, helped me think about the, you know, the spiritual nature of jazz. I was wondering if you could uh, could talk about that. Uh, to me, I, I always think of um, uh, so much of spirituality is not feeling alone, not feeling as one, and to, and to listen to music and to this sort of creative music, uh, it really sort of binds you with the uh, with another person's thought processes in a way that that feels transcendent. Well, the music when it's really centered and really working on a high level, you, you feel it, you know. Now, you can call that the spirit. Uh, in the South, they might say, wow, the music hit the hallelujah stage, <laughs> where it, it's really gotten past itself and it's gotten past where you're not thinking about music and it's, it's just a living thing. And uh, the music is definitely gotten to that point, you know, with different bands. I remember one night we were playing with Roscoe Mitchell at the Knitting Factory, and, you know, we had been to Europe and we came back, and just the band just got loose, and it just just shot off like a rocket. And you can tell when it's happened because it kind of, like, energizes you. And, and it's not a matter of the style of music as it is being open to the music itself, and and wherever you go, you use elements of different kinds of music. So you have a, a, a rhythm which you may associate with with a, a, it's called a Latin rhythm. You might use a uh, a classical kind of uh, melody. You might use a texture that comes from the certain parts of nature so you have you have a lot of different choices in using the elements of music but it's not so much about a style when it really goes up and flies and and i think that's kind of what you want to do with the music you want to go from transform it so that it goes from you know you you have sound and a sound is, is a car horn a sound could be some keys dropping. So how do you want, what do you want to do with the sound? You want to refine it and transform sound in the tone. And once you do that, then it can vibrate enough to react with your nervous system to really do some good in your life <laughs> and in the life of others. And if you, you have political overtones or if you have spirit, spiritual overtones, uh, that's all in the music too. But all the music is spiritual, whether you say blues and F, or you say Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, or, or Buddha's Delight, or uh, you say Fables of Fathers. It's all spiritual. It's, Do you feel like you get to that elevated level most nights that you play? Or? Well, you try. You try. Yeah. You try to get there, and... Uh, Actually, you don't try. You see, because if, if you try... It's like a Buddhist thing. Yeah, you yeah. don't really try. You get there by relaxing and realizing that this is a concept that you're not inventing music. Music was already there. You just have to relax and accept it. And that's the kind of idea. You accept the music, and you train yourself to accept the music. You train yourself not to interfere with the music. Okay, you, and you also train yourself to build up a vocabulary of magic, of things you can play and things you can do which will make the music rise up, as uh, Joseph Jarman says on in uh, a Jackson in Your House. There's a poem he says at the end called Rise Up, Harium. You know, that idea. Or Sonny Rollins playing East Broadway Rundown, which is a real another rise-up kind of thing, you know. <laughs> uh, Sonny Rollins, Elvin Jones, and Jimmy Garrison, that was working on a high level. So there's lots of ways you can work, but the main thing is that you end up with a warmth 
with a, uh, a joy of creativity within the final music. And it's also a growing thing. You can't do what you did last night tonight. It's a different night. You've got to be able to to go to the same place, but you can't go to you can't go there the same way. Yeah, yeah. It just doesn't work that way. You don't kiss your wife with last night's kiss. You got to kiss yeah. her with tonight's kiss. Exactly. <laughs> um, there was a quote that stuck with me that when I was reading through uh, interviews with you uh, recently, in which you talked about the the nights when it doesn't get there. I thought it was great. You said that. Uh, uh, you know, if it doesn't get there, you, you, you go back home and you think, I did the best I could, but but help never came. <laughs> I, I said that. You said that. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, uh, uh, I, feel, I mean, I've seen you play a number of times, and it seems like help always comes when I'm there. That uh, yeah, I've seen I some mean, transcendent uh, performances yeah, uh, that I, you've I taken part in. It, it always, if you relax, it's, it, you see, because help never comes because it's always there. Yeah. You see, uh, you, you, so you don't have to do much because it's always, it's always present. In the sense that the music, when we stop playing the music, the music goes on. Uh, so the idea that, that we didn't invent music, music is an entity, it's like a river that's constantly flowing of sound. We jump into that river and then we do things with the water. But then when we're done, we jump out. The water keeps running. It's perpetually forever running, and we are lucky enough to be able to participate there from time to time. Uh, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, uh, another major part of your uh, career, and uh, that's the Vision Festival in in, in New York City. You've uh, run that for many years now with your wife, uh, Patricia Nicholson. No. Uh, Sorry. See, that, that, let, let me correct it. I'll correct this for years. Okay. Uh, Patricia Nicholson thought of the Vision Festival. She organized it. But because of the world we live in, no matter how many times I tell people, and I'm not saying it's because, like, like I told you, you, you know, because people think that, well, it'll say William Parker and Patricia Nicholson Parker, and then it'll say, oh, well, William organizes it. But she organizes it, but this, this is the 19th year it's coming up, and she thought of it, she organizes it, she runs it. I, I'm just an advisor. Like she called, she'll, she'll call me later on and ask uh, and, and run something past me. But she actually runs it, and it's, I think it's a great festival. It's music, art, dance, and poetry. And over the years, we've honored musicians like Jimmy Lyons, Dennis Charles, Frank Wright, Sam Rivers, Fred Anderson, Joe McPhee, Peter Brutzman, Milford Graves. Um, I think last year we honored Milford Graves. This year we're honoring Charles Gale. We've honored Fred Anderson. And uh, we've also presented the music of, you know, music that comes down from African descent. And they call it the avant-garde or creative music. But and a lot of it has to do with, because a lot of people say, well, you know, you hire these old guys all the time. But it's, it's very important to respect and honor your elders because they're the progenitors of the music. You don't just reach a certain age and they kind of just are put to the wayside. And, uh, you know, if, if we didn't honor, you know, Sam Rivers is gone now. Fred Anderson is gone. You know. Jazz is, is is really different than a lot of other, probably more commercial musics, in that a lot of the other statesmen are, are still playing at incredibly high levels. Uh, to, oh, yes. Sam true. Rivers at the end was captivating and, and as exciting as ever. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, Fred, Fred, Fred Anderson would go down in that crouch, and, and he might come up an hour and a half later. You know, I mean, I would have loved to have him and Odine play together. Oh, not, uh, that would have been so nice. Oh, man, because you know, he plays so well. He loves Kid Jordan. We also are, and Kid just turned 79 oh, wow. this year. So, uh, and it's one of my dreams if we could just get all the, the, the tenors and get them on, maybe next year in January, get them on stage together. And play. Oh, that'd be oh, that'd be so nice. <laughs> Tell me about uh, meeting David S. Ware and uh, your connection with him. Well, I met David in the early '70s. He lived over at a place called Five Hundred One Canal 
Street, which was 501 Canal Street. It was uh, founded by a piano player, uh, Coopermore, then known as Gene Ashton, and uh, it was a whole building. I think they they paid under $500 for the whole building. Making me nostalgic for old New York. Yes. Well, I rented it for for that amount, and and uh, David Weir uh, was one of the per- people living there, and uh, they had a group called Apogee with Mark Edwards, David Weir, Gene Ashton, and that group was kind of a parallel group to Ensemble Muntu, Jameel Munda, that we had, and we kind of, and also William Hooker, the drummer was was around at that time, but they were the really like post Coltrane group that uh, was really taking it from where Coltrane left off. And uh, and David was a very, very, very strong player and very committed to his music. He knew what he wanted in his music. You know, uh, he didn't want to go to the left or go to the right. <laughs> he tried to keep things in the center, focus what he was focused on. And uh, and that's what he did from day one until he, he died. I mean, he was sounding the way he was sounding when he was in high school. Wow. I mean, he, he really uh, he, he went to Berkeley School of Music, and he was sounding that way. And uh, there, There's certainly no yeah. sense of him being compromised on any no, he's not recording. Compromised, yeah. No, compromised, I, I have one queued up here now with, with Billy Bang. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah tell, me, tell me about him. He, he's also been a, a major... Well, interest I, of the show. I met Billy Bang in the Bronx at the Third World Cultural Center, and he came in at the jam session, because I had my big band called the Amic Orchestra up there, and I was hosting... Amic ja- Orchestra? Yeah, what's A-U-M-I-C. It? We had four drummers, four bass players. What's and, what's that word uh, derived Well, from? it comes from the word om. Oh, okay. Because in, in Pharaoh Sanders' record, Tahid, he spells om, A-U-M. Uh, and then later on, we had Own Fidelity. Yeah. But this was like in, in 1973, the Amic Orchestra. And the thing is, it's, it's wonderful. In, in, in a year, so much was being done. I mean, every week, this was like tons and tons and tons of music. But I met Billy at the Third World Cultural Center, and we uh, began to, 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 to hit it off. As string players, I was living in the projects in the Bronx, and he would come over to my house, and we would practice together. My mom would make us dinner, and we would practice and go over concepts. And uh, it was it was from day one. And this has happened with many musicians I played with. You know, with Roy Campbell, with Daniel Carter, where you you meet them, and there's a meet. It's no like well we kind of grow into each other. It's like the first time we played is like we were already there for each other. Yeah. And, uh, and if, if you have that kind of communication with a, another musician musically, does it always cross over to, to verbally and interpersonally? Or uh... Well, in those days, see, after we played music, we would sit and talk about the same things I'm talking about now, about the politics, about spirituality, about... Uh, how the music fits in and how we can change the world and talk about revolution and talk about America. And we really had was simpatico with a line of thinking.
Mr. Parker's in town. Uh, well, he's in Philadelphia, actually, for a series of shows at the First Unitarian Church. The shows are premiering a new work by Mr. Parker called Flower in a Stained Glass Window, and uh, it is uh, a tribute to Martin Luther King, who uh, did uh, some studying and, and uh, came uh, came across a lot of inspiration at the First Unitarian Church there. The shows feature uh, Mr. Parker with his collaborator Muhammad Ali, the uh, wonderful uh, jazz drummer, brother of Rashid Ali, somebody who has uh, played a lot recently with William Parker, and they're joined by a chamber ensemble, an all-Philadelphia chamber ensemble, and different guests each each night. You had the first show last night, actually. Uh, yes, we played last night, and we had a wonderful performance with a great musician, Odin Pope, joining us, and the, the chamber ensemble, which is two violins, cello, bass clarinet, trombone, trumpet, and alto saxophone. And it was, uh, was sold out. And it was uh, just a small uh, chapel there, but the performance went off very well. We did the first section of the suite called Choir. And tonight we'll be joined by Marshall Allen, and we'll be doing the next section, which is called Dream. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. How, how long have you known uh, Odin Pope? Well, uh, I met Odin Pope in the 1980s. I met him in Europe when he was touring with the group with Gerald Veasley in Cornell, Rochester. And uh, I guess I hadn't really played with Odine in about 20 years. The last gig concert I played with Odine was at the Knitting Factory in New York with Sonny Murray and Dave Burrell and Tyrone Hill, the trombone player, late trombone player, and Odine. And as I recall, it was an excellent concert that night. And uh, No Dean played wonderfully last night. He really played wonderfully. Yeah, he's he's uh, been a cornerstone of the show as well. We've heard a lot of Odin Pope over the years here. You're 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 playing with uh, with all Philadelphia-based musicians uh, uh, with these four shows. Stand. You're playing with Marshall Allen of Sunrise Orchestra tomorrow night, but also Tuesday night you'll be playing with uh, the great Dave Burrell, who's been a guest on the show before. And uh, on Wednesday it's Bobby Zankel. Tell me about the inspiration of, for this piece, for Flower and Stained Glass. Well, I was approached by the artistic director of Arts Nova, Mark Chrisman, and he told me the story about Martin Luther King's relationship to this church, that when he was a seminary student here, that he went uh, attending a lecture about nonviolence. And it was sort of the 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 beginnings of his involvement with nonviolence with Gandhi and a certain particular philosophy. Uh, it's 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 not really written about that much. I mean, the, the, this in, what was happening as a church at that time. But the the inspiration I got was that Martin Luther King was a flower. And he was in the church, which had stained glass windows. And he was right there in the glass. <laughs> and so um, that was the initial inspiration for me. And it was divided up into four sections. We did a section called Choir last night. And tonight we'll do Dream, um, coming from I Have a Dream. And then the next night is a Resistance and Hope. Uh, again, about the idea of resisting and the hope that there will be a brighter future, freedom, and then the last part, unity, forever, which is uh, again has to do with the 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 urge and uh, desire to have unity, uh, coming from spiritual unity, Albert Eiler, and coming from sound unity, William Parker. <laughs> Um, thinking of, of, of King as a, as a philosopher and a thinker, I have to admit, I was very impressed uh, preparing for this interview, going through your interviews and uh, just uh, how rich the ideas uh, that, that, were, uh, that were talked about and espoused by you. And I, I was surprised to find out that, uh, well, maybe not surprised, uh, you're an author as well. Um, you have a, a, a third book coming out. Tell me, tell me about your, your work as an author. Well, uh 
I used to write short plays. I got interested in uh, the work of Samuel Beckett and, uh, and also the work of Harold Pinter. Mm-hmm. Through uh, first learned about him through his uh, screenplays for uh, Joseph Lossi's movie The Servant, and then found out he was also a playwright. And I got interested in in some of the English plays and English actors, and uh, Jerzy Grotowski, who was a Polish director doing avant-garde theater and also peter brook who did lord of the rings who also was doing shakespeare we just had mentioned him during the break and uh samuel beckett so i was writing short plays and poetry way before i started writing music and when was this this was from 1967 to the present wow and uh, in 1975, I wrote something called The Document Humanum, and that was, a little, again, a self-published little book, which was kind of a handbook for aesthetics and music, why we play music, why I played music, and a bit about there were drawings in there which spoke about some of my theories about the bass and about sound and how it's put together. So that was actually my first thing I did. Then the next thing I did was called Music and the Shadow People, which was actually a short story based off the idea of the tone world. And that's where I brought bringing the tone world, is that the tone world was a place that children would escape to because it was... Uh, there was no war, no poverty, no hate. There was only love and peace in the tone world. And it was also the place that musicians go to when they close their eyes and, and lean back and they play. And they lose sense of time and you go to the tone world. So music and the shadow people covered the idea of this general, general tulip. And uh, another guy named Raspy Voice, whose character was kind of based off of Miles Davis, and they go around and they round up kids, and they imprison them before they get to the tone world. Because once they get to the tone world, no adult can enter into the tone world, only <laughs> only kids. So there was, shat- there was music in the shadow people. Then the next thing, which was actually re- released as a book on a, a label, uh, publish a buddy's knife in Germany called Who Owns Music? And that's kind of all my notes and sketches put together and philosophies of music put together in, in one volume. And uh, I have a question yes. here. How, how does Miles Davis end up to be a negative character in the story about about music? Well, it's just based off of the way raspy voice that Miles had a raspy voice. It's not based off of his personality. I don't know if you had a more deep-seated uh, no, problem no. with Miles Davis. Oh, no, no. I, I, I have no problem with Miles. Miles was, was uh, remarkable. That's yeah. all I can say. I was listening to Kind of Blue the other day, and it's really very simple and, and folk-like and just wonderful piece, wonderful work. No, I have no problem yeah, I've, with I've been listening to On the Corner a lot lately. Yeah, no, no, Miles. I could you really like to talk. You know, one day come back and talk about Miles because I think he was misunderstood. Like a lot of musicians are misunderstood because I think we never ask the musicians to explain what they're doing. It's always a third party that just doesn't seem to get and understand <laughs> what the musician was doing and understand Miles's personality. With Miles said, "Oh, I don't know about this guy." Ornette Coleman, but at the same time, he was listening to Ornette Coleman intently. You know, I, and Eric Dolphy was somebody else who supposedly got some negative criticism from Miles. Yeah, but see, that, that was a front. You yeah. see, I think, I think Miles loved all music, and he just said things. And then at the same time, he was influenced by them. He kept his ears open, and I think he was like that. And I also think Mingus was like that. Yeah. You know, he had a, a, a sort of a rough exterior. But inside, he was very sensitive and very, very aware of what was going on. Did you, did you ever see Mingus play? Uh, back yeah, in the day? Uh, yeah, yeah, I saw Mingus. Mingus at, well, I actually had five spot when it, when it was on St. Mark's Place, and I had uh, met Mingus a few times. And um, what was that experience like? Well, you know, he heard me play once. He didn't say anything to me. Uh, he just looked, sat and listened to me for about. 
10 minutes. Then when I saw him at the fire spot, he said, oh, by the way, you're still playing. And I said, yeah, I'm still playing. He said, okay. And he just <laughs> shook his head. That's about it. <laughs> you know, I, I never had any problems with him. But he was a very, very, very interesting and dynamic personality, Mr. Mingus was. Yeah, it's only recently that I really made that realization. He was only 57 when he passed away. Yeah. I think of him as being such an elder statesman at the end. But, uh, yeah, sad, yeah, sad he passed so, so, yeah, so young. No, he was <laughs> and my second book that came out on the Rogart Publishing and from France is called Conversations, and it's a book of interviews. I think there's about 34 interviews of different musicians from Sonny Murray, Han Bennett, Alan Silver, Billy Bang, Roy Campbell, uh, John Edwards, the bass player, Wilbur DeYoder from Holland, John Edwards from England, and uh, 34 interviews. Plus, it comes with a CD where you hear the voice of the musician being interviewed. And I'm working on uh, next year, uh, Conversations Volume 2 will be released. So, yeah, so the literary has always been uh, a love of mine, also theater and also film. It's all like overlapped and crossed over my musical past. Through uh, some of the clips I saw on YouTube, it was another uh, another side of William Parker I wasn't aware of, and that was your teaching with children. There's a beautiful clip of you uh, playing in Brooklyn with some very inspired young kids, probably uh, under the age of 10, I would imagine. Oh, yes. I, I definitely uh, enjoy working with children. And uh, it's the same program I use with children as I do in the colleges. You know, I've been up at Bennington College. Uh, New England Conservatory, NYU, and, and it's the same program. It's the same idea of learning about sound, how to react to sound, and how to use your voice. And um, it's it's fun. It's, it's about how to find your self sound and your voice in the music. Uh, and the way you find your sound is. Is finding your sound is like finding your nose. <laughs> You're born with it; it's right there. If you don't look for it, if you look for it, you'll never find it. <laughs> Just retake your finger and touch it; it's right there. And that's how it is with your voice, with your originality, with the way you can only do things. Is that and realizing that only you can do things, and there's no and, and all you have to do is not lose that. You're born with that, and it just has to be developed. What releases could we find from you next? Uh, do you have anything coming out soon? Or? Well, the next thing I'm going to release is going to be uh, more composed music. I did a, uh, a piece called Ceremonies for those who are still for Symphony Orchestra, and that will be released next year as well as uh, some chamber music that was supposed to be on ECM label that didn't then come out, so I'm going to release it myself. And also I'm going to release, and that features Lena Conquest and uh, piano, saxophone, and Lena. And then I'm also going to release uh, a, a chamber piece I did for the activist Fannie Lou Hamer. Uh-huh. Uh, and that's going to be a three-disc box set on Centering. And Centering's your own label, right? Yeah. But it's distributed through Ohm Fidelity, as I've been doing. Once again, Mr. Parker, thanks so much for coming in and speaking to us. Thank you.
That's it for the show. That release William Barker mentions did indeed come out in 2015. It is the highly lauded for those who are still available through Ohm Fidelity Recordings. One, two, three, four. Thanks again to WPRB and thanks to William Barker who didn't just brave the questions you heard, but two more hours in the car in which he answered at least another 50. Starting in May, I'll be hosting four double features at Andrew's Video Vault at the Rotunda in West Philly every second Thursday of the month, beginning with a Hal Ashby double feature in May. Find out more at armcinema25.org. That's the numeral 25. Catch past episodes of the Fun and O podcast at SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Catch me spinning jazz Mondays at 11 a.m. EST on WPRB Princeton. Read my film reviews at Falkert.com and check back in two weeks for more Fun to Know. We're free, I tell you. So wake up. It's time.